Well, good morning, church. Happy Mother's Day. It is good to be with you all this morning. In April of 2003, uh, a man by the name of Aaron Ralston was hiking through a canyon in eastern Utah when, as he was descending between two canyon walls, a boulder on one side dislodged, and it trapped his hand, his right hand, between two boulders. Ralston had failed to inform anyone that he was going hiking that day, and he had no way to call for help. He had 12 ounces of water, he had two small snacks, and for three days, he worked to dislodge his hand by trying to lift the boulder, trying to break the boulder. And after three days, he was dehydrated and delirious. Ralston began to prepare to amputate his own arm. And he experimented with how to amputate in the least invasive way. On the fourth day, he realized that he would have to cut through the bones, but there was a small problem. He didn't have the tools sufficient for such a task. After running out of food and water on the fifth day, Ralston carved his name, his date of birth, and his supposed date of death there on the side of the canyon wall, and during the night he began to hallucinate. And during this hallucination, he saw a vision of himself playing with a child, but Ralston himself was actually missing part of his, his hand. And he attributes this hallucination with the idea that he, he, would, he would live. And so the sixth day he woke up, and he saw that his arm was actually beginning to decompose. And he became, he became desperate to tear it off. And so he used torque against his trapped arm in order to break both of the bones in his forearm. Then he used a dull two-inch knife and pliers to cut through the tougher tendons, and he left the major arteries for last. The process had taken one hour. He was free from the boulder. But he, then he had to repel one-handed, 65 feet down a canyon wall, and then hike eight miles to his car. Uh, about six miles into the walk, he came upon a family. You can just imagine, right? He came upon a family who's on vacation in the middle of the desert, and they're like, oh, wow, here's a guy with one arm walking down the road. <laughs> right? But they, 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 there was actually a search team that had been looking for him. He got picked up by helicopter. He got given food and water. He took radical action in order to save his physical life. There was no other option for him. Either die or cut off the hand to live. And for you, dear believer, the same level of radical response, of radical obedience, when it comes to the issue of sex and marriage, if you were not going to lose your own soul if you're not going to lose just your physical life, but your own soul, the same level of radical obedience is required of us. And so this morning, we're going to see that God created marriage between one man and one woman. And within that unique relationship, God expects that the gift of sex would be enjoyed only within that unique relationship. Although the misuse of sex comes in many forms, adultery is a specific way in which mankind misuses God's gift to a husband and wife. God's intention was for spouses to be faithful to one another, and by extension for marriage faithfulness to be a picture for God's, faith, for God's people to be faithful to him alone. As we will see, the Israelites failed miserably at being faithful to God alone, at worshiping him only. That is why you often see God calling the nation of Israel adulterers. Their adultery, is not in worshiping, their adultery in not worshiping God alone came from their heart. 
the heart was the problem. That there is one who is perfectly faithful because he was completely satisfied in God the Father, finding his greatest pleasure in his relationship with God the Father. Jesus is faithful to people. He's faithful to his Father. He was faithful to his bride, the church. And now Jesus calls us, his bride, his church. He calls us to radical obedience when it comes to sex, when it comes to marriage, because we are meant to find our sole satisfaction in God alone. Let me pray for us as we begin this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would have its good effect on us this morning. But for your, for your glory, we pray that you would make us today more satisfied in you than we were when we came here, and that you would continue to give us hearts that desire to be find our soul satisfaction, our pleasure, our joy, our treasure only in you, in Christ, and in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I apologize for the mistake on the bulletin. You can see on point number one, two, and three, it says Exodus 2013. We're actually going to be in Exodus 2014 this morning. And so if you would, open up to Exodus 2014. It's not a long passage. It's a very short. If, you, if you're using a pew Bible, the Bible that you find in front of you, Exodus 2014 is on page 61. We're going to begin this morning here in Exodus 2014. Now, if you have a handout, I hope you do. You can follow along with me in the handout as I'll be referring to the handout as I preach today. Exodus 2014 says, you shall not commit adultery. So we can begin by looking at point number one this morning in your handout, the commandment given. We're going to look at point, the 1A, the context and content of the command, of the commandment. So we've read Exodus 20.14. If you would, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2? Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be on page 2 of your pew Bible. And we're going to see the creation of marriage and the marriage covenant between one man and one woman. In Genesis 2, we see that God formed man out of dirt. That God planted a garden in the east, excuse me, planted a garden east of Eden and that God put the man there in the garden to take care of it. God also tells us that it wasn't good for man to be alone, so God decided to make man a helper. When the man surveyed all the other creatures, he didn't find a suitable helper. No other creature looked like him and could function like him. You can kind of imagine, right? You know, God brings the giraffe, Adam's like, mm, next too long. Right? Brings up the ostrich, no hands, that's kind of hard. The chimpanzee, it's like, that's kind of close but not quite the same as me. Maybe a little more hairy, I don't know. And this is where we pick up. I want you to look from verse 21, Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 to 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So he sees somebody, he's like, hey, that looks like me, but different. She shall be called woe man. Right, because he looked and said, woe man. Maybe you haven't heard that. I'm sure you have. My wife was convinced everybody's heard that. And I'm like, no, I don't think they have. But obviously he didn't speak English. Anyway, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become woe. 
one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we see from Genesis chapter 2 that it is God is the one who is the one who created marriage. He created male and female, and he's the one who brought them together. He is the one who made them for one another in a one flesh union. This one flesh union was designed by God. It was instituted by God. It is given by God to mankind for a husband and wife. I have to admit that as I was preparing for this sermon, I was intrigued by why God addresses adultery specifically in the Ten Commandments. And why not the broader term sexual immorality? We know that the other misuses of sex are also dishonoring to God's design. You can look at Leviticus 18. I mean, there's just all throughout the whole Old Testament. But sexual immorality, is a, it's an umbrella term. It includes adultery. But God chose specifically for adultery to be prohibited in the Ten Commandments. And so I had to ask myself, why? Well, first, you think about marriage was the first human-to-human relationship. It is the union that God instituted. It's a union that God made holy. Exodus 20.14, again, says, you shall not commit adultery. The word adultery here means to corrupt or to make impure. The one flesh union is given as a gift from God to the husband and the wife for their enjoyment, for the strengthening of their marriage bond, and for having children. Sex is meant to be enjoyed in that husband and wife relationship only, which means if the one flesh union is used outside of the marriage relationship, the relationship between the husband and the wife will be corrupted or made impure. As Jen Wilkins says in her book, Ten Words to Live By, unfaithfulness in marriage corrupts the purity of the union, debasing what God has declared holy. She goes on to say, sexual desire inside the marriage covenant is an expression of mutual love. It is a rightly ordered desire. Sexual desire outside of marriage is an expression of lust. It is a disordered desire. Sex inside of marriage is about commitment and vulnerability. But sex outside of marriage is about consumption and vulgarity. The joining of what God has not joined. So God does address sexual immorality throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament specifically, but here in the, New, in the Ten Commandments, the prohibition of adultery in the Seventh Commandment establishes the honor that God expects to be kept in the marriage relationship. That is, what is said in the negative, you shall not commit adultery, is meant in the positive, protect and honor the marriage relationship by keeping the one flesh union within the marriage relationship only. So we've seen God's expectation for maintaining the one flesh union within the marriage relationship. Now I want you to see how Israel failed on both an individual as well as a national level. So going to point number two, the commandment fulfilled, I want you to look at point A, failed by Israel. Of the just many examples that we could look at today in the Old Testament, we're only going to look briefly at one, and it's going to be David and Bathsheba. So if you would turn with me, to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and your pew Bible, that's on page 262, 2 Samuel chapter 11. According to Deuteronomy chapter 17, one of the first tasks that the king was supposed to do is to write out by hand, an entire copy of the law. 
The king was supposed to read from it all the days of his life, Deuteronomy 17 says, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and keep the words of the law. Clearly, the words of the law included the seventh commandment. King David tells us over and over how much he loves and delights in God's law. And so this week, uh, excuse me, this, in this past month as I've been preparing for this sermon, I can just imagine myself thinking, if I'm David, I'm the king, and I'm obeying what Deuteronomy 17 says, David has not only read the seventh commandment, but perhaps he's even written it by hand. And so starting in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse number 1, if you will read with me. 2 Samuel 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. I want you to notice, David is king. He's not out at the battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So pause. At this point in time, David has only noticed the situation. The temptation comes, but now the response, what will he choose? Will he choose to kill that temptation and turn away from it or to give in? Verse number three. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Obviously, Huge mistake. He did not turn away from the temptation. Even though he hadn't physically done anything yet with the woman, his heart was already giving birth to sin. And one said to him, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her, from her uncleanness. We get that comment there, right? Just to try to understand why in the world she would have been bathing. Uh, just to, yeah, not impugn her. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David finds out that she's not only single, but she's married, which should have stopped him right there, knowing this is one of his soldier's wives. And yet the sinful desire, the evil desire that was birthed in his heart that he had not put to death came into full light as he committed the adultery physically that he had already committed in his mind. He didn't choose to turn away from the temptation and kill it. He is king of the nation, and if the preservation of the one flesh union is not being respected at the highest level of leadership within the community, well, there's no reason to think that the rest of the community will continue to observe that and respect that union. And this is the way the nation of Israel went, not just for dishonoring the marriage relationship, but also for not honoring God only as God. There was a failure to keep the one flesh union inside the marriage relationship, and at the national level, there was also a failure to be faithful to God alone. Instead of saying true to God, who had revealed himself to them, who had rescued the Israelites and supplied all their needs, what do we see Israel doing throughout most of their history? We see them being unfaithful to God by worshiping other gods. So moving to point 2A, number two, the national failure, I want to just take you through the journey, right? In Deuteronomy 31, we read that God told Moses, right? Just as Moses is about to die, the Israelites are about to go into the promised land. Joshua's about to lead them into the promised land. God tells Moses that the Israelites will enter the promised land and give themselves over to foreign gods. They will forsake God and break the covenant that God made with the people. God says that he will hide his face from them, that is, he's going to remove his presence from among them. 
because they will turn away from God and worship other gods. Joshua leads the people into the promised land, and the Israelites seem faithful to God while Joshua's still alive, but then Joshua dies. And then we come to the book of Judges. We read throughout the book of Judges how the Israelites worshipped other gods and were not faithful to God alone. And this continues on to the point where the kingdom of Israel splits into two kingdoms. You've got the ten northern tribes in the north. You have Judah, Benjamin, and the city of Jerusalem in the south. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, God says that Judah and Jerusalem, excuse me, and Benjamin, they did not take seriously the judgment that they saw the ten northern tribes have been taken away into captivity, dispersed throughout the nations because they were not faithful to God alone. But they didn't take it seriously. It says in Jeremiah chapter 3 that Judah continued to pollute the land by committing adultery with stone and tree. This is not a physical, sexual adultery that God is describing here. It's something much deeper. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. It's their dissatisfaction in God. They were seeking satisfaction in place of God. And God calls them adulterers. The question that we have to ask here is, where does adultery ultimately come from? Does it come from outside of us? Or does it come from within us? Because if it comes from outside of us, then we can shift the blame to something outside of ourselves. But if it comes from within, then that should be scary. The physical action of worshiping another god, the Israelites did, it was a reflection of a heart already having gone away from worshiping God alone in the same way that physical adultery is a reflection of a heart already moved away from a spouse. The simple truth was that the Israelites saw many awesome acts of God. They saw his abundant provision and they received his word through their leaders, but their hearts were not devoted to God. Why? Because they were not satisfied in God alone. And because they were not, they didn't keep the covenant relationship that God had initiated with them. And they committed adultery against God by worshiping other gods. I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 15. It's going to be on page 821, is where we're going to be in your pew Bible. And we're going to point 2A, number 3, the heart of the matter. The religious leaders, when we get to Matthew chapter 15, they, just, they have just scolded Jesus because his disciples had not washed their hands before they ate a meal as part of a ceremony to keep themselves clean. The washing of the hands was not about germs, it was about a ritual. And Jesus teaches his disciples an important principle about what actually makes a person unclean. So starting in verse number 10, Matthew chapter 15, I'm going to read verse 10. And he called, excuse me, and Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Skip down to verse number 15, if you will. We're going to read from 15 to 20. But Peter said to Jesus, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. For our focus today, I want you to look at, we're going to concentrate on verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, what comes out of the mouth starts in the heart. But what starts in the heart doesn't only come out of the mouth. Look at verse 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts. So it's thoughts and words that start in the heart. So thoughts, words come out of the heart, but it doesn't just stop there. We can keep reading in verse 19. Murder, that's an action. Adultery, that's an action. Sexual immorality, that's an action. And we can keep going. Your thoughts, your words, and your actions all start in the heart. And so you may be asking, if this starts in the heart, is there something inside of me that causes me to be inclined toward evil? And the answer is yes. James 1.14 says that each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by his own desire. That is your own evil desires. You are born in a state of having evil desires. And therefore your heart is inclined toward thoughts and words and actions that do not honor God and do not honor other people rightly. So at the core, at the most fundamental part of who you are, when you're born, you have a heart problem. You are bent toward finding satisfaction in the created world rather than in the creator. You are born with a satisfaction problem, and that problem is on full display. When you seek satisfaction in the pleasures of this world, that will never fulfill your desires. When our greatest joy, our greatest delight, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest treasure is God himself, we have no space for evil thoughts, sarcastic remarks, or dishonoring actions toward other people like adultery or sexual immorality. So if the heart is the problem, is there a remedy? On our own, there is no remedy. We cannot change our hearts. We see God's word pointing to the truth all throughout the Old Testament that the problem was in the heart. The Israelites go from, we will do all that you say. We will do all that you tell us to do to making a golden calf. They needed a heart change. The nation of Israel failed to maintain the covenant faithfulness to God. But there was one who lived a life of complete faithfulness to other people to God the Father, and to his own bride. Jesus Christ lived that life of complete faithfulness. He found his sole satisfaction in God the Father alone and lived a life that honored God and mankind in the most exemplary way. So I have a question this morning that I wonder if you have thought about before. When we read the Gospels, when you read about Jesus' life, do you envision some type of Superman Jesus? just kind of floating around, healing people, invincible, somewhat even aloof to the troubles that were around him? If that's the way that you envision Jesus this morning, I pray that as you see God's word this morning, that your mind will be changed to see how the Bible speaks of Jesus and his ability to relate to us this morning. So let's look at point 2B, fulfilled by Christ. I want you to listen to what Hebrews 4.15 says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Got to love double negatives, right? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. That means that we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
and one who in every respect, every respect is what it says, has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. This verse says that Jesus was tempted, real temptation. And this temptation, though, different from us, did not come because of his evil desire, because he was not born with evil desires. The temptation came from outside of himself. Regarding the seventh commandment, just think about the seventh commandment. Jesus was surrounded by women. I'm not sure if you, when you read the gospels, if it just, if it pops in your mind or not, he was supported by women financially the entire time that he was in ministry. They followed him. They were there when he was crucified. They were there when he was buried. They were there when he rose again from the dead. Jesus had real desires, real temptations, and he fought those with the word of God, like we see in Matthew chapter four. Satan comes to tempt Jesus to turn, I'm sure we're all familiar with this, the three temptations, Jesus out in the desert, Jesus is hungry after 40 days of not eating, and Satan tempts him to turn the bread, to turn the rocks into bread to satisfy his physical hunger. Kevin DeYoung says this, he says, when we strip Jesus of his humanity in such a way that he doesn't have any real temptation like we do, we undercut his empathy. We undercut his ability to understand us when we pray. But if we recognize that he was a real human with real desires and real temptations, then we can go to him when we are tempted and we can plead for help since we have a high priest who understands us in every way and was without sin. You have a high priest who, under, when you are tempted Think, just think whatever, whatever is most tempting to you in life right now. Money, coworker, bigger house, easy life. Your high priest understands you. You can go to him. He Empathy means I have experienced it. He, he understands you. Jesus lived a life that honored the marriage relationship. We see Jesus being tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. He was faithful to the women around him, not to covet or to lust after them, but to honor them. And we see Jesus' faithfulness to God the Father, point two B, number two. Jesus never went after other gods, but maintained relationship faithfulness to God the Father. And you may be thinking, this is kind of a crazy idea, Josh. Like, of course, he's God the Son. He's going to maintain covenant faithfulness with his Father as a faithful high priest and mediator, Jesus kept the seventh commandment on behalf of the people. Hebrews 3 says that Jesus was faithful to God, who had appointed him over God's house as son. You think about the three temptations in the wilderness again. In Matthew chapter 4, we read this account, the third temptation. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, this is showed Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, this is, Satan speaking to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus is being tempted to worship a being other than God the Father. But for what purpose? Satan says that he can give all the kingdoms of the world and their glory to Jesus. Will not all the kingdoms of the world one day be Jesus's? Will not every knee bow and every tongue confess one day? This is not an insignificant temptation that we see in Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus being say, saying, Satan saying, I'm giving all this to you if you'll just worship me. But what does Jesus do? 
Verse number 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, there's Jesus taking delight in his father's word, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So Jesus honored his relationship with God the Father by not worshiping any other being, any other God. And then point 2b3, Jesus honored his own bride, the church, that is us. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, we read this command from Paul to husbands. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So in this command to husbands, we read how Jesus loved the church, his bride. Jesus was faithful to his own bride. And he made the ultimate sacrifice by giving himself up for her, for dying for her, in order that he might present the church to himself in splendor, and that the church might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is committed to you, the church, no matter what, even though we still struggle over our sinful habits. Jesus didn't leave when things got ugly. He didn't grow cold because we left our socks on the floor or lost our temper a little too much. Jesus didn't look elsewhere for someone who could meet his needs better. He is committed as our bridegroom, finally and forever, to us, his bride. So we see Jesus fulfilling the law in every way. He fulfills the seventh commandment specifically by honoring the women around him, by honoring God, worshiping him alone, and by honoring his own bride. There is no aspect of the seventh commandment that he did not fulfill completely, but as we heard earlier, for us, the heart is the matter. Jesus had a heart that was completely devoted to and satisfied in God, the Father, and his word. And so you have to ask the question this morning, do you have a changed heart? That is, do you have a heart that is completely devoted to God and seeking to be satisfied in God alone and in his word? The only way to receive a changed heart is to admit that you are a sinner, to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the punishment for your sin that your sin deserves, and to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. God has promised that when we trust in Jesus as our King and as our Savior, God takes our heart that has affections for all that the world offers and gives us a heart that finds satisfaction in God. That is great news, that God himself changes our heart. We are given new affections. And then God promises to put his spirit within us. This is a great and wonderful promise that you can have as yours today, if you will believe. But if you do not believe, there is no amount of help that I can give you today that will help you change your thoughts and your words and your actions. And at the end of a life where there is no heart change, there is only a fearful expectation of death, of judgment, and of eternal separation from God. Today, if you confess that you are a believer, then this next section is for you. It's not easy to hear, and to be frank, it's not easy to say either. Because you are a bride, pledged to one bridegroom. I always want to be respectful when I speak to another man's wife. 
And so if I have hard things to say this morning, please know that I do not say them lightly. And I want God's word to be made clear. As our Savior and King, Jesus now calls us to sell everything, to follow him and to take up our cross and to die to ourself. And there is an aspect of dying to ourself that I want to challenge you with this morning. Specifically, what does it look like to apply the seventh commandment to our lives as believers in Jesus? And so let's begin by looking at what Jesus said with regard to adultery. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at point 3a, radical removal. Matthew chapter 5, just a few pages over from Matthew 15. Where we were, it's going to be uh, page 810. We're going to look in verse 27. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that that your whole body go into hell. This theme has surfaced many times this morning. And Jesus cannot be any clearer here that adultery is not just a physical act. Adultery begins in the heart. And And the heart that can look upon a woman in order to lust for her is not a heart that's satisfied in God. It is not a heart that finds its sole joy and treasure in Christ and the gospel. And so Jesus speaks radically here to grab attention. Remove a physical body part to save your soul. This would have shocked his listeners. Jesus is saying that it is better to lose part of yourself now in this life in order to gain eternal life than to lose your soul because you were unwilling to make the hard decision to radically remove whatever it is that is keeping you from obeying. If a person can go so far as to remove his physical arm trapped between two boulders in order to save his physical life, why are professing Christians not more serious about the state of their souls when it comes to obedience in the area of sexual immorality? And here Jesus points to something even more radical than mutilation of the hand or the eye or the arm to resolve the problem. What could be more radical than removing your eye or your hand? It's removing your heart. The heart is the issue. He's suggesting something even more radical because what comes out in your thoughts and in your words and in your actions comes from the heart. The radical removal is not merely removing the temptation by making others dress more modestly, or by removing the internet from, or the TV from your home, or by changing society, the problem lies within our hearts. Now, you may need to remove those things from your home. You may need to encourage other people to dress more modestly. You may need to get rid of that TV. Whatever it is, you will never deal with the heart of the problem because at the core... You are created to find your soul satisfaction in God alone. 
Why? Why is Jesus so radical when he's talking about adultery and sexual immorality and lust? Because there are only two options for those who say they follow Jesus. Looking at point 3b, I want you to listen to Romans 8.13. Very clear. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I'm a very black and white person. As I get older, I find myself accommodating a little more gray, not just gray here, but like gray like in life. But there is no gray in Romans 8.13. If you live according to how your flesh says you should live, you will die. That is, you will perish forever away from the presence of God. And when temptation comes, the flesh says, that's going to bring you a lot of pleasure. But what does the word of God say about giving into that temptation? Galatians 5.21, those who give themselves up to impurity will be lost. Matthew 5.30, those who forsake the fight against lust will perish. Hebrews 12.14, those who do not pursue holiness will not see the Lord. Colossians 3.6, those who surrender their lives to evil desires will succumb to the wrath of God. Option number one, eternal death. But the last half of Romans 8.13 tells us the second option. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Eternal life is option two. It is everlasting joy. It is pleasure forever. This means that we have to fight against those temptations and against the deeds of the body that would come out of those temptations if we want to live. Truly living is being satisfied in God. I want to say a quick word, if I may, to my brothers and sisters who are here who have committed adultery whether it be physical, whether it be online, whether it be emotional, and have had a godly sorrow over it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly sorrow, godly grief, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas a worldly grief, a worldly sorrow, produces death. If you have committed adultery and you have had a godly sorrow that produced repentance from your adultery, then praise God. Live, please, live in that forgiveness that Jesus has paid for you on the cross. Be thankful that God has worked to expose your adultery, whether it be here or physical. And praise God that he gave you a godly sorrow over it. I want you to live in that freedom today if you have found it. In case it is not as clear as it can be, why we should be so radical in how we view sexual sin and sexual immorality, I want us to look at one last passage. Ephesians, no, 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 look, excuse me. I'm just going to read it for you, excuse me. Uh, point number 3C. <clears throat> The kingdom of God denied. You can turn there if you want to, I suppose. But I'm just going to read it really quickly. Ephesians 5.5. 5. What is the judgment that is coming? It says, 
Paul says, for you may be sure of this. I mean, there you can't get any clearer. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no, no, zero. It says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It's very clear. The sexually immoral, which includes those who physically commit adultery and those who mentally or emotionally commit adultery. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. No inheritance. Why? Well, who are those who normally inherit? I mean, I know in today's age, it's like you can like bequeath your estate to like your dog and your cat and they can live forever on that, whatever. Right? But just thinking typically, right? Who typically inherits? It's children. Children are the ones who inherit. Inheritance is given to children and so everyone who is sexually immoral, simply put, is not a child of God. You will be denied entry into the kingdom of God. Only those fighting to find their soul satisfaction in God alone. I'm not sure how many times I've said it this morning, but only those fighting to find their soul satisfaction in God alone will inherit the kingdom of God. So what is the remedy? It's a changed heart. It's changed affections. Being satisfied in God alone and what his word says about him and about his promises, that's what will help you to fight against sexual immorality and against adultery and against anything else that is keeping you from entering into the kingdom of heaven. John Piper, in his book, Future Grace, he puts it like this. Faith delivers from hell. And the faith that delivers from hell delivers from lust. Faith produces a persevering fight against lust. The evidence of being heaven-bound is that we take radical steps like gouging out our eye rather than settle for a pattern of lust. So the fight that we fight is the fight of faith. We fight to be so satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ that temptation to sin loses its power over us. Romans 8.13 says, If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul agrees that eternal life is at stake in the battle against sin. So we have to answer the question, how then do we obey Romans 8.13? But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. First, we have to recognize that the power of all temptation is this idea. That sin will make me happier. Then second, the word of God cuts through Satan's lies and shows me where true and lasting happiness is to be found. The role of God's word is to feed faith's appetite for God. And in doing this, God's word weans my heart away from the deceptive taste of lust. So I read Romans 8, 6, that says, setting the mind on the flesh brings death, but setting the mind on the spirit brings life and peace. And I read in 1 Peter 2.11 that lust wages war against my soul. And I read in Psalm 84.11 that God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. And I read in Matthew 5.8 that the pure in heart, they will see God. And when that happens, and what happens is I read, the flame of satisfaction that I have in God grows. And rather than believing that the sin will make my future happier, the truth, the word of God, says that God will make my future happier. And if we fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, we will fail. We must fight the temptation using the massive, 
promises in Scripture of superior happiness in God. So if you're here today and you would say, yes, I'm a Christian, and yet you find yourself living according to the flesh, not fighting against the sin of lust or of sexual immorality, you have no reason to think that you are truly a believer. A changed heart comes with changed affections. And if your affections are not changed, then you have to question that. If your satisfaction is found in sexual immorality, it is not found in God. Your satisfaction is not found in Him. You need to ask God. You need to beg Him for a godly sorrow, a godly grief over your sin. You need to repent For your own soul's sake, repent. Faith that delivers from hell, delivers from lust, it delivers from sexual immorality, and you need to take radical, drastic, life-changing action today. We'll sacrifice our money and our time in order to find a solution to our physical sickness. We'll go over land and sea to seek out doctors who will help us with our cancer, with our Parkinson's, with our diabetes, with our heart disease, in order to preserve our physical lives. But as Christians, as professing Christians, we are lackadaisical when it comes to obedience in the area of sexual immorality and the state of our own souls. As we have seen, the Bible speaks about those who do not fight against sexual immorality and temptation in a devastating way. And much like the man who was backpacking through the canyons of eastern Utah in 2003, he had to take radical action in order to preserve his own physical life. If you claim to be a believer, you need to take radical action now to preserve your own soul. If you are running the race and following Christ, no price is too high to pay for your king. No relationship too precious to give up. No coworker too appealing to stop having lunch with. No internet site too helpful to stop frequenting. No magazine too well written for you to keep reading. No step of obedience is too radical. No temporal pleasure is worth being cut off from the presence of God forever. Do you really want to be in the middle of pleasuring yourself, in the middle of that fantasy, in the middle of that relationship that you know that you're tempted in your mind to think about when the Lord Jesus returns? Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. When temptation comes your way, fight. When the fleeting pleasures of sin excuse me, when the fleeting pleasures of this life tempt you, be satisfied in God and in the gospel through his word. When Satan offers you happiness and temporary things, bring God's word to mind and the massive promises that he has for you in the word to satisfy your soul in him and God alone. The Holy Spirit will help you with this. The Lord Jesus, our high priest, he is interceding for us. He is praying for us, so fight because Jesus has fought for you. He has broken the power over sin and over death. So fight, if you will. Pray with me as we close. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning that encourages us 
to honor the marriage relationship that you have created. It encourages us to be faithful to you, God, alone. And we are so, so thankful that we have a high priest who empathizes with us, understands us when we are tempted, that we can run to him, plead with him, He understands us. We are so, so thankful. And we look at your word and we see the warnings from your word this morning. And we want to be those who by the spirit, by the spirit you have given to us to put to death the deeds of the body so that we will live. And I pray for anyone here this morning who knows the things they need to radically give up today. I pray that you would bring it to mind. You would break them of it. You would cause them to have a godly sorrow over it and they would repent and continue to fight and run the race that you've called us to run. Do that work in us for your fame, for your glory. Be our satisfaction, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.